Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And um, it happens about half the time around here. Having a Bible actually helps because not the whole text is printed in the bulletin. And um, So if you don't have a Bible, again, there are some on the back uh, table there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll start in verse 22. Um, we've, we've started a new series on worship. Um, and this is the first week that we're getting into the particular elements of worship, which are those components that you find printed in the, um, the, in the bulletin in small caps, uh, bold, larger font. Those, those are what we're considering elements of worship. And we're not going to talk about all, all of those that appear in our bulletin, but uh, kind of the big categories um, over the next few weeks. Um, so this is the first week we're getting into those. We're talking about the call to worship uh, this morning. In the, in the great dialogue of our liturgy, the, the order of service, the call to worship stands at the beginning as uh, God's initiative. God's word uh, to us is first word that then uh, demands our response. Uh, we've been looking at the kind of the fundamental or essential aspects of uh, worship so far, the things that are definitive of what worship is and how we should engage in it. And uh, we spent two weeks looking at these things, but there's kind of four things that we've been looking at. Um, first is that God reveals how he's to be worshipped. Again, we've talked about that in terms of the regulative principle, which is a fancy theological term for uh, God regulates our worship uh, through his word. Uh, and really, it's kind of an application of the first and second commandments. You shall have no other gods, so this is who you're going to worship. And um, don't worship me using images that you've devised. Don't worship me according to your own imagination. Um, so how to worship God is uh, given to us in Scripture. We're not to worship him otherwise. So we've got to pay attention to Revelation. Um, worship is Trinitarian in nature, and we've looked at how that kind of affects everything. There's that quote that uh, looked at the last couple of weeks by uh, James Torrance that says, worship is the gift of participation through the Spirit in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father. So that's been crucial. Um, uh, I've really benefited a lot from that book, uh, Delighting in the Trinity, that we're going to start looking at in our Tuesday night home group. And um, it's kind of one of those lenses through which we should see everything in our faith. Uh, One of those lenses through which we should uh, approach the scriptures and and certainly our worship is uh, that God is triune. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and then thirdly, worship is incarnational in focus. So our service is a retelling of the gospel story. It's a dramatic reenactment of the gospel story. And so, uh, our worship is to be Christ centered and cross centered, especially, um, uh, we focus on the salvation of the Lord and, uh, our response is made to that. And then, um, and then fourthly, last week we looked at, uh, because worship is reflective of the Trinity And because it's uh, reflective of God's redemption of us, then love, especially love of each other, ought to uh, give shape and order to our worship. Everything that we're supposed to do is uh, uh, supposed to be edifying to one another and and even evangelistic uh, in character. And so Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 14, when you come together, let all things be done for building up. So... um, there's a sense in which uh, we looked at that last week. But, uh, so the call to worship is also fundamental in a sense. The call to worship is also fundamental to um, 
to our worship. It, it arises directly from what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, and it really sets the tone for so much of our worship. We're, we're to understand everything that we're doing here this hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half, whatever, um, as a response to uh, this call to worship. We're called outside of ourselves, right? um, through Jesus Christ, to be truly other-focused, to offer, offer ourselves fully and entirely to God to, um, to love and consider one another. And worship is our eternal destiny. Worship is our lifelong pursuit. And it's something that God has to initiate. God has to win it from us or we'll never do it. Um, and the fact that God has initiated this relationship, he's called us to worship, is actually in itself a tremendous incentive to worship. His calling us to worship actually brings forth worship from us. Um, because his calling is effectual. Uh, that's what we're going to look at this morning, uh, the effectual calling of God, calling us to worship. So um, I apologize in advance if this is maybe a little bit more theological um, in its significance than uh, just concrete application to everyday life, but I think it's crucial for us to understand uh, what we're doing here in worship as a response to the call to worship. So, um, so let me pray. And then we will read 1 Corinthians 1, 22 to 31. Father, we pray that you would send your spirit into our hearts to illumine our minds, make us to understand your word, your revelation, make us to understand and to know your son, through whom we have fellowship with you, we pray that as we come to your word, uh, that you would help us not to reject it, because that is our natural tendency. But we pray that you would help us to receive your word with gladness and to be changed by it into the very likeness of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So um, here's a little bit of context for uh, this part of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. He says in, um, just a little bit earlier in the, the chapter, in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree 
and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So it had been reported to Paul that, uh, that there was quarreling in the church in Corinth and that the people were divided into these factions, right? Some were saying, well, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm of Peter, Cephas, and uh, I'm of Christ, right? Um, and it becomes clear that these were matters of self-righteousness for them. These divisions were being formed because of their self-righteousness, basically saying, well, I'm better than you because I'm one of the first followers of Paul, right? I was here early on, and I'm one of Paul's guys. Or I'm better than you because I appreciate Apollos' amazing teaching. Paul can't hold a candle to that guy. This guy is theologically just on it, right? Um, or I'm better than you because my loyalty goes all the way back to Jesus himself, right? Um, when you use Jesus as an excuse to separate yourself from other professing Christians, you better be careful. Um, the problem is uh, selfishness. It's self-exaltation, which leads to division. Ultimately, uh, the pursuing their righteousness apart from the gospel of grace, that is, that God freely gives us his righteousness through Christ. Uh, uh, ultimately, what they were doing pursuing righteousness apart from the gospel is actually kind of the baseline mode of operation for all of us apart from God's grace at work. We will use anything, anything at hand, to be able to boast about ourselves, about our own wisdom or our own strength or nobility, greatness, uh, whatever, as Paul listed in our uh, passage. Uh, we'll use anything to boast about those things. And, and the troubling thing is that those of us who are um, really good at it I guess, uh, can even use a religion of grace to remain uh, self-centered and self-righteous. Um, but this causes divisions, right? This causes divisions, which Paul was seeking to correct by addressing um, not just the divisions on, on the surface level, but the root of the problem, uh, the self-righteousness, the self-obsession, the self-fixation um, that is universal among sinners. So he reminded them in our passage, of their calling. Their calling. So there's a sense in which the Bible uses the language of calling, where it says that word, um, to talk about the, the kind of wide net that is cast um, whenever the gospel is preached, basically. Um, uh, calling everybody who hears it. If your ears are able and your mind is able to understand when the gospel is preached, that is a call of God to you to give up your selfishness and to turn your heart over to him and worship. Uh, theologically, this is um, the universal call or the general call of God where he commands all people everywhere to repent, uh, all people everywhere to believe the gospel, and, um, and he does so even though not all people respond. Right? So in this sense, um, the whole Bible is actually a call to worship. And in this sense, our whole worship service is a call to worship, right? Um, but that's not the way that Paul's using the language of calling here. <clears throat> the other way um, that theologians understand the Bible to talk about God's call, and the way that Paul is using it here in verses 24 and 26, um, when he says, consider your calling, uh, is, is described as his effectual call. And this is where God, by his Holy Spirit, through his word, 
effects or causes or brings about the response that he is commanding of us. Um, so I'll, I'll read the passage again, and this kind of makes sense. Um, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. That is, everybody else who's, who's not a believer, basically, uh, everybody in the whole world um, is either looking for, for some kind of miracle from God or they're looking for this whole religion thing to make total sense the way, the way that it is. And um, so they're, they're looking for signs and wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. We preach the gospel which is a stumbling block to Jews. It's a stumbling block to those who are looking for um, signs of power or miracles. It's folly to Gentiles, those who are looking for wisdom, but to those who are called, to those who are called both from Jews and Greeks, any kind of person that's out there, those who are called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So those who are called hear the gospel. They hear the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And they hear it as good news. And everyone else is offended by it. Everyone else thinks it sounds ridiculous. Because it accuses us of sin and makes known our need for salvation. Right? The difference between those who don't respond to the gospel with faith and those who do respond to the gospel with faith is that those who do are called in this sense, according to Paul. God has worked in those who are called to enable them to respond to the gospel with repentance and faith. So the Bible teaches that unless God calls us in this effectual way, we will never respond to his general call, that broadcasting of the net. We will never respond to it with trust and worship. And that's why the Bible talks about repentance being a gift from God. The Bible talks about faith being a gift from God. These are not things that we muster up in ourselves uh, because, you know, we made a good choice, right? Because we're sensible people. Uh, and that's why the Bible says that we need new hearts. We need new spirits. We need to be born again from above. Um, God doesn't just initiate reconciliation with himself by sending his son into the world to live and die for us. He doesn't just initiate by having the gospel uh, a reality that we can uh, refer to. He initiates our very response to the gospel by sending his spirit into our hearts, by giving us new hearts. And that's what it says in our Old Testament reading. Uh, it was the promise of God through Ezekiel uh, in chapter 36 I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And um, I think sometimes this grates against us because we think, oh, you know, God... God surely wouldn't violate our will in such a way that uh, he would do. He wouldn't save us against our will. No. No, he gives us a new will. We're not saved against our will. He gives us a new will, a new heart, a new spirit, a new affection for the things of God, for the word of God, for the law of God. Right. He changes us from the inside out. Um, it says this in um, 
In Acts chapter 16, we've got a, uh, an example of it where uh, Luke is writing about one of their missionary journeys that he was with Paul. And he said that one who heard us was a woman named Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. And in 1 John chapter 5, uh, the apostle writes that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, has already been born of God. Being born of God is what makes it possible for someone to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And if God doesn't do this, then we will not respond to the gospel with faith. We'll remain dead in our trespasses and sins, which Paul says is the natural state of sinners. He says, we were all that, right, in Ephesians 2. We were all dead. Uh, and that's why Jesus says we won't believe in him. We won't come to him unless his Father does the work of drawing us to him. Uh, read a few verses from John chapter 6 where Jesus is speaking with the Jews and speaking with his disciples, and he says, um, he says I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Right? This is an expression of unbelief. Right? They do not trust Jesus. And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. A little bit later, he's talking with his disciples. He says, there's some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. You don't believe because it hasn't been granted to you by the Father. And that's why so many of um, Jesus' miracles present God's work to us in terms of the blind having their sight restored or the deaf having their ears opened up or paralytics being made able to walk and leap again or even the dead being raised and restored to life, these are essentially problems that we cannot fix ourselves, right? Um, we cannot strive to make improvements and gain inch by inch against um, blindness or deafness or paralysis. Uh, if we're dead to begin with, there's no movement in our heart toward God, right? And spiritual death is the state that we are in prior to God's effectual calling. We are spiritually dead because we've turned away from him who is life, the one who has fountains and streams of life flowing from him. And once we did that, once we turned away from him, the result was irreversible by our own power. We could never recover from spiritual death left to ourselves, ultimately, because we just don't want to might sound crazy, but we turned away from God and we are too proud or we are too afraid to turn back 
And so there's this uh, Latin um, theological phrase uh, that describes us. It's that we are in curvatus in se, which is we are curved inward on ourselves. Right? The, the direction of our, our affections, the direction of our attention, the direction of everything that we seek for is inward upon ourselves. We were made to set our eyes on God, but we've become fixated on ourselves. Now, <clears throat> apart from God's effectual calling, all we can do is focus on ourselves and pursue our own good. Seek what we imagine to be our own good or in our own best interests. All we can do is glory in ourselves, boast in ourselves, and work for that glory. That's all that's going on inside those who are not called, and it's still even going on inside those of us who are called. And that's why Paul had to address divisiveness in the Corinthian church. That's why he had to hack at the roots of their pride. That's why we still need this book, Hacking at the Roots of Our Pride, 2,000 years later, even though we've been maybe Christians for decades. We need to be reminded of God's calling, reminded of his gracious and effectual calling. And that's why we've got to be reminded regularly that we're not the center of the universe we're not blessed to be part of the church because of who we are. We didn't gain immortality and heavenly glory for ourselves, but because, because God, out of sheer grace, called us to worship him. That's, uh, Brian Chapel has a quote at the beginning of the bulletin. The host of the worship service is divine. We do not invite him to be present. He invites us to come before him. He always initiates. We respond. So if we're going to have our eyes set on God's glory rather than our own, if we're going to, in humility, count others more significant than ourselves, if we're truly going to worship God and love other people, then God has to effectually call us to it by his spirit and through his word. God has to take the initiative and make deep changes in us at levels um, that we don't even want to reach apart from his grace. And the good news is that God has done for us what we could never even have the right to hope for. God has done for us what we could never possibly do for ourselves. He didn't have to, but he sent his son to die on the cross for us to take away all the punishment that we deserve for our sins by suffering under God's holy anger in our place. While we were sinners, while we were enemies, dead set in rebellion against him, Christ died for us. How does that sound to you? Does it offend you to think that God calls you a sinner? That you could never earn your own salvation? Does it offend you that, that Jesus, the God-man, would have to die for you to grant you eternal life with God? Because apart from God's spirit at work in you, calling you to worship him, calling you away from your self-righteousness, calling you to God-centeredness, apart from that work, that's what Paul says is the normal response of people like us. We are offended at the gospel. Cannot believe that Christ crucified is good or necessary. Luther, uh, Martin Luther said um, in his book, The Bondage of the Will, said, it is the highest absurdity by far. 
foolishness to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jews, as Paul says, that God should be man, a virgin's son, crucified, sitting at the Father's right hand, it is, I repeat, absurd to believe such things. But if the, if the gospel of Jesus Christ is a beautiful sound to your ears, then you can be sure that it is because of God. Because of his own initiative, uh, he has called you by his spirit. He's given you a new heart. He's made you a new creature with new allegiances, new affections. And that works straight against our self-glorification project. And it causes our hearts to glory, to boast, as our text says, to rejoice in God rather than in ourselves. He says uh, in verses 26 and 29 of our, through 29 of our text, um, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So I'm afraid that not many of us were pleasant, lovable folks. And that is precisely why God has chosen us and called us, so that we would stop exalting ourselves and start glorifying him. And that's the same thing God was saying through Ezekiel, again in our Old Testament reading. Say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Then you will remember your evil ways. You Consider your calling. Right, You will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, not so you can glorify yourself, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. So the result of God's regeneration of our hearts, the result of God's giving us his own spirit, and giving us a new heart and effectually calling us is that we would hate our ways, that we would turn from them in repentance, turn from our self-glorification project, get our eyes and our affections off of ourselves and onto God for his glory. Right? So um, Alan Johnson, who's a commentator on this book of Corinthians, he says that um, this is God's ultimate purpose in the proclamation of the gospel of the crucified Christ is to overthrow all human claims of achievement, all boasting in one's success and a claim in participating in God's wisdom and power, salvation, to highlight the glory of grace as a sheer gift. And God does this. He wins worshipers for himself by uniting us to Christ by his spirit. That's what it says in verse 30, 30 and 31. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, 
who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You're not in Christ Jesus because you were smart, because you made a good choice. You are in Christ Jesus. You have faith in Christ Jesus. You are united to Christ Jesus because of God, so that you would boast in the Lord, in his grace. Everything we were trying to gain in our self-glorification project, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, everything we could never hope to gain through our self-glorification project, um, God has freely and graciously given to us by placing us in Christ, by granting us faith in Christ, a new heart as a free gift to the praise of his glorious grace. And that's why the effectual call to worship is itself tremendously good news. This is being written to the Corinthians as good news that God calls us to worship so effectually. God being who he is, his initiative is not to destroy people like us. His initiative is to have mercy on us, to bring us into his very house, to place us in his son by giving his spirit to us. And Augustine, um, in prayer, it's a beautiful prayer. He says, you have called, you have cried out, and you have pierced my deafness. You have radiated forth and have shined out brightly, and you have dispelled my blindness. He has given himself to people like us. He's done the work of bringing people like us into his house, and so we sing with John Newton, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind. But now I see. And his calling us to worship changes the trajectory of our lives. It changes our destinies. It sets the tone for our gathering, for sure, right? It gives shape to our response of worship. In a sense, the whole worship service is a call to worship as God and the gospel of his grace are set before us for our response, and we're called to respond, we're called to worship with our whole being, we're called to respond to his revelation with, with our minds, with repentance, with faith. We're called to respond to his mercy with our humility, with unity among one another, with love for each other, and with service. We're called to respond to our salvation with bringing gifts and praises and thanksgiving and the proclamation of his glory to the nations in that doxological evangelism, uh, evangelistic worship. We are obligated to respond. We are commanded to worship. It's It's only made possible by the work of God's grace which he loves to do in us. He loves to lavish his love on us um, through his son and by his spirit. So praise be to God, right? Praise be to God. I'll close with the reading of Psalm 100, which is a famous call to worship. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. 
Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Amen.